It's the 2nd of April, 2017, and this is episode 325 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey everyone. And special guest Stephen Pear, co-founder and CEO at BitPay, one of the earliest companies providing services to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Stephen, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, glad to be here. So it's been a long time since we've caught up with anybody at BitPay. And, you know, I noticed while I was uh, prepping for this that you've actually taken over the CEO role. Last time I was paying much attention, that wa- you were the CTO. I'm wondering, can you kind of start us off with a little bit of your background, um, both pre-Bitcoin and getting into Bitcoin? And then just if you could bring us up to date on what's been happening at BitPay over the last year, I'd love to hear that. Uh, sure. I got started in Bitcoin late 2010 uh, when I read the, the Satoshi white paper. You know, talking about Bitcoin, I got very excited. I had a background stretching back into the 1990s with cryptographic payment systems. I was a fan of DigiCash. Got very excited about that in the 1990s. And, you know, through the late 1990s, early 2010s, there wasn't a whole lot of progress on, you know, moving the ball forward as far as cryptographic payment systems. After DigiCash went bankrupt, everyone started thinking about how can you come up with a system that wasn't dependent on a centralized operator. The Satoshi white paper appeared. I heard about Bitcoin when it was first announced, but I didn't pay it much attention until until I read that white paper in late 2010. And then I was very fortunate that I had the background that I did that you know, I realized the problem that had been solved, which was around coming up with a protocol that wasn't dependent on a centralized company. And so I got very excited. My background is computer science. I started writing code when I was six or seven years old, back in the 1970s on a TRS-80 Model 1. I've been a part of a few startups and co-founded a, one of them prior to BitPay. And I was eager to get back into a startup and had a lot of ideas. Nothing really jumped out and grabbed me like Bitcoin did. And so that's when I started talking to Tony. I knew Tony from college. He and I kept in touch over Facebook. and. You know, got him excited about the idea as well. And then uh, that led to the idea to start BitPay. So the story that you just told sounds really similar to people who think of themselves as cypherpunks. Do you self-identify with that or kind of what was your interest in the early days in DigiCash, you know, leading into this? I don't really call myself a cypherpunk just because I was kind of vague of the mailing list, the cypherpunks mailing list, but I, I wasn't like an active participant of it. I never posted it on that mailing list. Um, so I wouldn't call myself a cypherpunk, but I got very fascinated just about how money works. And I distinctly remember somebody making a comment that, you know, you have have this dollar bill that is a worthless piece of paper with worthless ink stamped on it, and yet everybody assigns it value. And why is that? And thinking about why that is, and then realizing that's an information system. It must be an information system. And if it's an information system, it must be possible to take what was, you know, and you have to put yourself back in the time frame of the late 80s, early 90s, when the world was much more physical, money was much more physical back then. And thinking about ways to put that entirely in a computer system. And I just got really fascinated with that topic. And, you know, in the late 90s, you also had Phil Zimmer, EGP happening, and I was, you know, followed that very closely. And so I just loved cryptography. I love thinking about these big picture ideas uh, around the nature of money. So by the time the Satoshi white paper had come out, it was like, you know, decades of wanting to see a viable system that could like re- reinvent money for the modern internet. So I just got very excited about it. But no, I, don't, I wouldn't call myself a cypherpunk. Just be, I mean, I, I, I share a lot of their ideals, but I don't, you know, I was never a direct participant in that community. 
Talk to me about the business model of BitPay because, you know, in the very early days of Bitcoin, there were other companies, but the two that have sort of lasted was BitPay and then Coinbase. And Coinbase started off as an exchange and has gone into kind of merchant services because it seemed like kind of a natural expansion for them. But BitPay stayed pretty true to its mission of just being kind of a merchant services processor. And then you guys do some kind of exchange function, I think, for like larger clients, mm-hmm. but there's no public facing uh, thing there. What, what, what was the decision to do the payment processor in such an early ecosystem rather than to go the exchange route that seems so much more tempting to so many more. Yeah. So in 2011, you already had quite a few exchanges. Of course, you have Mt. Gox, uh, but there were a handful of others that were being developed. And we just felt like there was no company addressing the problem of how do you get mainstream businesses using this platform and this technology. And we don't really think of ourselves as a merchant processing company. We think of ourselves as a payments company. Um, and, you know, you see that reflected in the fact that we now have a wallet and, uh, you know, we launched Copay and now the BitPay app. And the mission behind that is, or the purpose behind that is to give us a platform where we can innovate on the end-to-end payment payment experience. If you're only on one end of the experience, only do so much, right? So we think of ourselves as a payments company, and we have a number of different payments-related tools. We have, obviously, the, the merchant processing, but we also have payment disbursement. So this is like mass payouts, a payroll company that wants to offer employees the, the ability to receive a paycheck in Bitcoin. You know, we have that tool for them. We also have a billing tool, and we've actually had that since the beginning in 2011. And that billing tool is, more, think of it more like a business-to-business supply chain type of tool. But the real business model for BitPay has always been get businesses actually on our platform and using the technology and then grow with them as their needs expand and they want to use the technology more and more. I mean, we're seeing that. We see, you know, back in 2011, it was mostly mom and pop merchants that were using the platform. And we started signing up more notable merchants like Microsoft and others, Newegg and, and companies like that. And they started doing payments. And now what we're seeing is uh, more and more of these companies wanting to do payments, but more B2B payments rather than consumer to or B2C payments. And of course, we have tools that make that very easy. Do you have any insight into why that is? Is it just like a friction problem? Because if you're doing B2B, you only have a couple of people who actually need to be on board with the technology in order for that to be efficient versus the merchant services approach? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, we kind of drew a lot of analogies to the development of email. I'm old enough that I <laughs> lived through the growth and adoption of email. And I was very, I remember back in those days, I was very excited to get an email address, but I couldn't email anybody. <laughs> and there were a handful of enthusiasts that used, used email. And I told everybody back then, you know, email's the future. Everybody's going to communicate this way. You know, the post office is dead. Um, but, uh, and eventually that happened, but not for a very long time and not until after actually businesses adopted email first businesses, they're willing to overcome a lot of usability problems and user experience deficiencies that consumers will not tolerate and businesses will do it because they can save a lot of money. Our thought was you're going to have the enthusiast community that adopts it. Then you're going to have businesses really adopt the technology and use it to save costs and improve efficiency. And then only after that will you have mass consumer adoption. And I think it's happening. Yeah. So it feels like that's on track. You still feeling good about that thesis? (laughs) We're feeling great about that thesis. So BitPay today is two of our most profitable quarters ever, some of the most profitable months ever. So on that topic, do you want to talk a bit about the dark days? About the what? The dark days. So it's the two most profitable uh-huh. quarters now in 2016, or maybe it was the end of 2015. BitPay went through a fairly difficult period where profitability wasn't quite there. It was during the time when the price had dropped. There was a lot of disillusionment. 
And there was a bit of a retrenching. I, I don't know if that was very yeah. public, but certainly it, it seemed to be visible. You know, to me, that's also a success story, right? Because it's it's easy to be optimistic during the good times. How did you keep it all together during the difficult times? Yeah, so that's going on a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years now. So essentially what happened was we, like everybody else, thought that this stuff was going to take off and adoption was going to happen much quicker than it actually did. And we grew too large. We hired too many people and we had to cut back. But Tony and I never really felt like we had ever lost control of our own destiny in the sense that we felt like we had on a free cash flow basis a very solid business. And it was just a matter of tweaking knobs to adjust to the circumstances. I hate to say it that way and that, that sort of bluntly because it affected a lot of people very negatively, but they did understand it when we went through it. And when we ripped off the Band-Aid, so to speak, the people that stayed with BitPay and were here, I think almost had a sense of relief because all of a sudden our job was not quite as insurmountable. We did what we needed to do. We, Tony and I really never felt like we were in, in danger of, you know, like disappearing. One of the uh, things that, from an industry perspective, I think was also very positive at that time was that even if people did think that BitPay was in danger, the vast majority of the public-facing work that BitPay was doing then, still doing today, is open source work. And that's a marked difference for many of the other companies in the space. It's something that I've praised down before, that it's one of the few companies that really takes the open source ethos seriously, gives back to the community in a very big way with projects such as BitCore, Insight, and of course, Copay, to name just a few, as well as training infrastructure for sandboxes for teaching people how to do Bitcoin and JavaScript with BitCore and things like that. How did the company really develop that open source ethos? What is the advantage that you feel it gives, if any, to the company? Well, that ethos comes from my belief in open source. So I've been involved in a number of open source projects over the years. If you look at Bitcoin itself, it never would have happened if it wasn't open source because people can't audit the code. They can't trust the software that they're running if they can't actually see the code. I'm not a big fan of the infrastructure we have in place in the world today around intellectual property. I think information wants to be free and we invest in writing code, but we kind of get some leverage out of the code that we do write, if we can open source it and get other participants in the marketplace also building on that same software, and we benefit and they benefit. I think if you're also the leader in an open source project and you're pushing the, the ball forward and you're on the cutting edge, it does give you an advantage over people that are building around that same project in, a sen in the sense that you develop a lead and you have the opportunity to keep that lead if you don't screw up. And so eventually we'd like to open source all of BitPay. The only reason we don't do it today is a little bit of fear that, you know, maybe there's some warts hidden deep within the bowels of our code that somebody might exploit. And also a lot of that code is just kind of my own messy coding and I'm a little bit embarrassed by. But eventually we would like to open source all of BitPay. And I think that will happen as we spend more of our energy building new stuff around the existing open source projects that we have and sort of the older stuff just kind of withers away over time. I think there's a very clear distinction in that ethos between BitPay and any of the other companies in the space. There are a handful of companies that are very, very serious and consistent contributors to the entire community in terms of open source. But a lot of the companies in the space have contributed very little or nothing at all in terms of source code back to the community. So I think that bears mentioning and also praising. Yeah, thank you.
Yeah, absolutely. At Tokenly, we're using BitCore. We just created a modified version of Copay that supports counterparty tokens and a couple of uh, signing workflows that we were interested in. And uh, we're using another one of your components too on the back end. So given that, I'm, I'm curious, like how much contribution do you guys actually take into your open source projects versus are you just putting out there? We try to be very responsive to contributors as much as we can. I mean, we're a small company and we have a lot of demands on our time and, and we have to stay very focused on what we need to do to make BitPay successful. But it is very important to us, the open source projects that we do put out there that they are successful and that they are, are vital or they have vitality and that people are actively contributing and participating in those projects. By the way, one project I want to talk about is Vcoin. We're very excited about you know what JJ over at Purse is doing with that project. They're building on the same technology stack that BitPay has. And JJ used to work at BitPay. And you know, when, when he was at BitPay, we, were, we had this debate, do we build a full Node implementation in Node.js and JavaScript, or do we kind of build our infrastructure around Coin Core? And we elected to build around Bitcoin Core just because we didn't feel like we had the ability or the capacity to build a successful open source full node implementation in JavaScript and maintain it appropriately. So we elected to interface with and use Bitcoin Core. But JJ had Bitcoin, had started Bitcoin even before he came to BitPay. And we're very excited that he's now really got that project to a point where it seems like it's critical mass of momentum and it would fit very well into BitPay's infrastructure for us to use it. So you might see some kind of adoption of Bitcoin within Bitcore over time. That would be amazing. We were just talking about what it would take essentially to recreate the entire system using Bitcoin as kind of the, the base layer. So uh, so you could see, you know, integrating Bitcoin in as either an alternative or are you talking about potentially like just replacing it or two versions? Or? Uh, no, we would probably take over time and gut Bitcore. I, I wouldn't say gut Bitcore. So Bitcore is this stack of software. It's, it's libraries and it's a node, but it's designed to interface with an, another full node, uh, namely Bitcoin D or Core. Now, what we would talk about would be taking Bitcoin and integrating it into Bitcore, bringing those two projects together. So it seems like this continues to be like the open source stuff that you're working on and everything. Really, what you're just trying to do is you're just trying to solve your own problems. And then it doesn't cost you anything to do it in this way. And you do seem to be getting some benefit from it, even if it's just publicity and people you know, knowing more about your projects because they're available. That seems like a, a net positive. Um, would we uh, want to talk at all about the changes to Copay? I think that's a platform that's seen quite a few releases lately. Re-released it also as a branded wallet, separately from the original open source Copay as a BitPay branded wallet. And it's seen some recent changes in performance and stability and things like that. Can you tell us a bit about what's happened to Copay space? A little over a year ago, we launched the BitPay debit card and we worked with a traditional credit card processor to roll that out. And they had a website and a user interface for their debit card where you could see your transaction history and all that kind of stuff. But it to put it delicately, it wasn't up to BitPay's standards as far as the user interface was concerned. Really felt like we needed to redo that and do it in a, in a better way. And so we started looking at, well, do we put that into Copay um, and then start to add sort of Visa debit card functionality into Copay? And we just didn't feel like that was the right decision to make for Copay as an open source Bitcoin project. And, and we'd always had this debate about, do we launch our own app with our own brand on it? And we kind of felt like we eventually needed to do it. And then the, the needs for the debit card were kind of the catalyst to actually make that happen. So going forward, what you'll see is the BitPay app will have more BitPay-oriented capabilities and features in it, and Copay will remain more of a true Bitcoin-focused wallet app. And we're working on some, some cool stuff 
down the line where we hope to be able to allow people to build secure modules that plug into Copay that would allow them to, for example, write a wallet for one of the altcoins and have that supported in Copay. You know, BitPay, we're not going to spend a lot of time ourselves doing that, but we do want to enable that kind of functionality. So for uh, our listeners who may not be aware, Copay is, among other things, a multi-signature wallet, probably the most sophisticated multi-signature wallet with workflows that exists out there, both desktop under Chrome, as well as mobile on Android and iOS. But it's also a single signer wallet, and in fact, a multi-wallet platform. And it's a front end for using hardware wallets like Trezor, Ledger, and things like that, either in single signer or in DSIG mode. Can you talk about some of the other changes that are maybe filtering into Copay open source from the BitPay branded wallet? Well, so we, we launched the BitPay wallet back in October, I think. And I really wanted to release a new version of both Copay and the BitPay wallet at the same time, but we just couldn't make it happen. And we wanted to release that at Money 2020. So we focused on getting the BitPay app and it was always our intention to then come back and, and bring Copay up to speed with it. But the main key performance improvement we made in uh, both the BitPay app and Copay is we built a whole new QR code scanner and we got it working on all the platforms. And that took us quite a bit of work. And we needed to do that because if you use the older version of Copay and you do QR code scanning, you could just run some simple tests and you can you know, try and scan a QR code. If it's a, a big QR code, it might take you a little bit and you, you might have to adjust the lighting to get it to actually scan that QR code successfully. Use the new version of Copay and, and the BitPay app. You could be sitting on the other side of the room and just kind of wave the phone around the room and it'll pick up the QR code. It's, it's that much better in terms of performance. And so we did that and then we really analyzed the user interface and tried to make the app more conducive to people using multiple wallets. One thing that I've been wanting to ask you guys for a long time now, actually, very few Bitcoin companies out there actually have what I would consider functional insurance. And uh, one of the reasons why that is, is because it's such a new space and Bitcoin is so ill-defined and there are so many kind of attack vectors that don't seem to really fall into the conventional insurance understanding bucket. You guys had an experience that seems indicative of this. I, I guess it was uh, over a year ago at this point. Was it two years at this point? Yeah, I think it was about two years ago. Right. And you can explain it better than I can. But just basically, there was a situation where you thought that your insurance would cover you, but it didn't wind up covering you. You know, how do you think about insurance as a Bitcoin company in the current environment? And do you guys have insurance? Uh, we do. So I can't comment on the specifics of it, unfortunately. I wish I could. But I, I would say in general terms, the insurance industry does not understand what they're insuring. And you have a, a situation where brokers for insurance will write policies and then the insurance company doesn't really necessarily understand what they're covering. And that is just a recipe for bad outcomes, I think. So when you see people proclaiming that they have insurance for this you you probably if, if that's important to you then you probably need to dig into that a little bit further and really understand a lot of the contractual relationships that exist and get out the microscope and look at the fine print so i i think that basically summarizes the situation today so but generally though you feel like it's a conversation that bitcoin businesses should actually have if they feel like insurance would be something that would be useful for them it is worth kind of going out and talking to people and you know you got it sounds like you have to make sure that you're really covered in the ways that you think you're covered but you think it's worth doing yes if, if for no other reason than to help teach the industry about this technology 
and help them understand what it is and how it works. I, I will also say that if we do our jobs well from a standpoint, employing things like wallets and, and whatnot, then insurance should become very, very cheap to get because the, the risk will be very, very low. The Let's Talk Bitcoin show is now accepting sponsor applications. And this time, you don't need to be an advertiser. If you're a listener with a project or passion looking to connect with the other LTB listeners, contact Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with the subject listener special for the deal. Back to the show. One of the ongoing conversations that we've had at Let's Talk Bitcoin over the last six months, I guess going on a year at this point, is whether or not we were kind of wrong at a fundamental level in a lot of the early assumptions that we made about how Bitcoin was or was not going to be used. And this this primarily, this gets us into the conversation about uh, on-chain versus off-chain transactions and how do you really scale this thing that we call Bitcoin or that we call cryptocurrency. You know, back in the day, our thought was pretty much that everything was going to be on-chain because you could do everything on-chain. And the whole point of a peer-to-peer financial system is to have peers send to other peers within the financial system. Over time, because I'm running a business that's attempting to use Bitcoin in ways that are you know, a little cost sensitive, and there are lots of microtransaction type of uses out there, those things are kind of being driven off chain. And now we find ourselves in a situation where perhaps Bitcoin winds up being used as a peer-to-peer layer between either people doing very high value transactions. In all likelihood, we wind up with that plus Lightning Network for settlement and all of these other things. But fundamentally, We seem to be walking away from that. Everything happens on-chain thought. And uh, recently, in one of uh, about four articles that you've written in the last two years, you guys increased the minimum transaction that you support at BitPay from four cents up to a dollar, which is still very low, but it does get out of that microtransaction. I want to pay, you know, five cents to, you know, listen to a song or something like that sort of use case that was talked about a lot. So I guess the question here is, how has your thought process on this evolved over time? Is that consistent for you too? You thought initially it would be everything on chain and then now kind of you're just coming to use the situation as we find it? Well, yeah, I guess I would start out by saying that, you know, our viewpoints on these issues is nuanced and it it changes. In fact, the other day, one of uh, the developers here at BitPay was commenting in Slack, uh, you know, asking me how many times I'm going to change my mind on this stuff. And I said, well, as often as necessary (laughs) until we figure it out. I don't think anyone else would tell you that their understanding of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies hasn't evolved over time and isn't sufficient, substantially better today than it was a year ago, two years ago, or not, you know, our case six years ago. So yeah, I mean, we've, we've written a lot about this subject. And I think if you read it, you'll, you'll see how the sort of the views have evolved over time. Um, But, but there's so many aspects to this conversation that we could talk for hours on it. Well, we've got a little bit of time to talk about it. You know, so moving down this path, does BitPay become a lightning network style hub? Do you guys see yourselves getting into the hub business or do you see yourself staying in the on-chain space and other people will fill in the off-chain space? You know, we, we have a viewpoint and, and this actually we did think about in 2011. We did put a lot of thought into, can you do every transaction on planet Earth on-chain? And I think even back then we realized that there's going to come a point where you can't do it. You can't, you just cannot put every single transaction on chain, especially if you want to do things like streaming payments, if you want to do things like paywalls for news sites. I mean, you could look at the world today and say, okay, there are this many visa transactions. There are this many MasterCard transactions. And you can kind of say, well, can we target that? Can we do that? And you could arrive at one conclusion based on that. But if you recognize that, 
what we'll do in the future around streaming payments, around paywalls and all kinds of other payments, all the cool things we could do, then you realize that the number, the volume of payments on, on the planet is going to expand dramatically. And, and I think there ultimately does come a point where you can't put everything on chain. So then the question becomes not whether you do everything on chain or not. It becomes, how do you do it off chain? And can you do it off chain in a way that is just as privacy protecting and far more scalable as on-chain. In fact, I think when we look at it, when you do an off-chain payment, it's even more private and certain ways has even better properties than an on-chain transaction. I think part of the misunderstanding here is that many people see this as a debate between choosing to do things on-chain versus choosing to do things off-chain. But the reality is that already a hundred times the volume of on-chain transactions is happening off-chain, but it's not happening on on trustless payment channels that use Bitcoin transactions. It's happening in MongoDB and MySQL on payment providers who are doing payments between their own customers uh, and sometimes between their own customers and merchants that they have on their platform using private databases and systems where you have to fully trust the third party. So it it really becomes a choice between off-chain trustless and off-chain MySQL. Yeah, and we can do a lot better than that, off-chain. Right. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at Bitcoin today, you know, one of the things we always remind ourselves, if Bitcoin did not change one bit, even kept the one megabyte megabyte block limit forever, we've got enough tools at our disposal that we can completely reshape the global payment system. And we sometimes we'd like to remind ourselves of that. We don't have to change one bit about Bitcoin to make that happen. Now, that's not to say that uh, we don't want to see Bitcoin grow and evolve and become better. We, we absolutely do. So about three years ago, um, we built our first little auction machine that allowed you to um, that allowed people to bid with Bitcoin using entirely on-chain transactions. So if you got outbid, then you sent another transaction to your bidding address, right, in order to accomplish this. About a year and a half later, we spec'd it out again, and it was at that point everybody who wanted to bid deposited all of their Bitcoin that they wanted to have available in the bidding process, and then they could do the actual bidding in a kind of on-chain capacity. But there was still the ability to automate kind of the payout at that point. And now when we just spec'd it out again last month, now the plan basically is you don't take deposits or on-chain transactions from any of the potential bidders at all. Instead, you revert back to kind of the eBay model where, you know, like you can do some basic verification by having somebody verify they own an address and then taking the contents of that. But there's no prepayment that occurs there because it requires too many on-chain transactions. And if you had, say, 20 people bidding, then that winds up having a lot of winding and unwinding and fees that get uh, tossed in there. But what, what happens in that is that you wind up sacrificing some of the kind of meaningful benefit that we used to get from the application, which is solving the problem where somebody who is bidding on an item at like eBay can run away after they win without paying. And so the kind of point over time of what the auction tool has been for has pivoted from being about solving that problem and providing, you know, a way for people to use uh, Bitcoin assets and Bitcoins and things like this to instead just being about providing people a way to use Bitcoin assets and things like this and not really trying to solve the problem of authenticity. Because even in the situation where you have something being sold for $100, if you have, you know, 20 people making two transactions each, then it just winds up adding a ton of noise to the blockchain and a lot of extra costs that you know, frankly, if you did it entirely off chain, you don't have to worry about any of that. So this is a long way of saying your most recent post or second to most recent post talks about how Bitcoin scaling is not moving to altcoins or other blockchains, but is moving to this off chain layer. 
And in the situation I just described there, we're all, we're going in that direction too, but there are major sacrifices that come with that. And I wonder what you think about the purpose, frankly, or the future potential utility of blockchains that are more specialized towards specific use cases that interface with Bitcoin, but that aren't Bitcoin, but also aren't an off-chain Bitcoin layer. I would say that there are a lot of different cases that could be solved by different kinds of blockchains, some that are open participation like Bitcoin, others that might be a closed blockchain that are you know, permissioned. But when we look at the, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem, I think a lot of those blockchains are going to be secured by the Bitcoin miners. Okay, so let's back up for a second. You've talked about how kind of the thought about scaling and the thought about Bitcoin has changed over time, and you'll continue to change your perspective as long as kind of new information comes in that, you know, warrants that sort of change. What is your position right now? How do you guys think Bitcoin is going to scale? And if it's different, how would how do you want Bitcoin to scale given, you know, your choice? So what is our current position? So we took a look at this question of the hard fork to start with and what, what impact that would have on, on BitPay and how we would think about that. And we reached the conclusion that the cheapest thing for BitPay to do would be to completely shut down until the hard fork occurs and there's a clear winner. And then once there's a clear winner, we would evaluate that and uh, take a look at, at, at whether that would blockchain that we were interested in using. And then if assuming it is, then we would bring BitPay back online. That really is the cheapest, most cost-effective way to deal with a contentious hard fork that we're potentially facing. And to tell everybody at BitPay that we're going to shut down all of BitPay while this happens is very demoralizing because we, tr we work very hard every day to keep our systems and our servers online and operational and functional 24-7. When things go down, we take it very personally and uh, we work around the clock to get things back and, and operational. And, and to just say that, you know, due to factors beyond our control, we're going to shut everything down. And it may be minutes, hours, even days before we can bring it back online. That's That's awful. So we don't like a contentious hard fork primarily for that reason. We could deal with a hard fork that's non-contentious. That should allow a very smooth transition from one sort of set of consensus rules to a new set of consensus rules. The operation of the network would not be impacted and BitPay could stay operational through that transition. But a contentious hard fork, we can't do that. So we don't like it. I'll also say that we also are very concerned about this concept of emergent consensus in Bitcoin Unlimited. I personally, my sense is that it, it's not a good idea. And I would say it's definitely not a good experiment to put on the Bitcoin blockchain. But there is a, an, an emergent consensus, if you will, that happens among people. But once a consensus is reached, you want to express that in very well-defined rules in the software about what is valid and what is not valid. And the reason I say that is that if you allow emergent consensus to happen sort of on the chain, if you will, then what you'll find is that you're going to have a much higher incidence of chain reorgs, blocks being reorged several, several blocks deep on the network as this emergent consensus happens. That materially degrades the operation of the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin network is not designed to have co constant reorgs. Reorgs are supposed to be a very rare anomaly. All the economic incentives are aligned to make it such that reorgs almost never happen. And when they do happen, it's usually a, a timing issue where two miners have found a block at almost the same time. And so you have a very momentary reorg. If you think about a reorg that could happen two or three or four or eight blocks deep, then you start to introduce a whole lot of usability problems when people's balances in their wallets go from being 
showing one number to a different number as the chain gets reorged. That is really degrading the, the network, the Bitcoin network, and we don't think it's a good idea. I, I'd be interested in your opinion about the, the balance of power, you know, the idea that at the moment you have this precarious balance essentially between five different constituencies of consensus, as I call them, developers, miners, exchanges, merchant processing, and wallet users, right? Mm -hmm. And they all have power, some power. They have power through either economic activity, through being the primary on-ramps and off-ramps, the primary interfaces to even more economic activity with merchants, power because they write the software or power because they're running the mining hardware. And that there's a balance there. Nobody, nobody gets to tell the other parts what to do. And you can't walk away from the table and leave behind the other four parts of consensus because then you pay a hefty price. One of the uh, problems in my mind about emergent consensus is that it very deliberately shifts a lot of that power to the miners in a way that they can then have a situation where more powerful miners or, or miners who control a greater percentage of the hashing power can tweak one of the essential parameters of Bitcoin in a way that allows them to put their uh, less profitable competitors out of business and after a few rounds of doing that emerge with almost complete control of the hashing power. What do you think of this idea that consensus isn't something that miners do, but consensus is something that happens in five different places or by five different constituencies, and they have to remain at this precarious balance. Well, I agree with that. I, I think that the users ultimately have the final say on what they will use. It's as simple as that. So the users in Bitcoin are going to determine the future of Bitcoin, not the miners, not anybody else. And if the users decide that you know what, this blockchain doesn't work for us and they'll go use Litecoin or they'll, they'll use a fork of Bitcoin uh, that does enforce the kind of consensus rules that they want. So the most important thing I think is, are the users. I really like this idea of the user activated soft fork and uh, followed by a minor activation. I think if you step back from that and think about it at a high level, what it's basically saying is we want to build consensus among the users that there's this new set of rules that we want to enforce on the network. And the, the users are expressing their desire for that in one form or another without getting into the technical details of how that works. But, but the users are saying, we, want, we like this, we want this. And then once that becomes clear, then, the, then there's a minor activation process where the miners start only building a blockchain that enforces those, those rules. Um, and the miners basically have a very simple economic decision to make, which is, is it profitable for me to adopt this new set of consensus rules? or not. And if it is profitable, they'll enforce it. If it's not, they won't. And and that's, to me, that that's the right way to go about building uh, consensus. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see where, where that avenue goes, takes us. I think if you look at BIP9, it, it, it's very focused on minor activation or entirely focused on minor activation. If you look at this more recent idea of a user-activated software, it's basically saying that let's start with getting the users on board with it. And only after that do we then go through this minor activation.
I asked this earlier, but I think it got overlooked in one of the other questions. So given this kind of vision for scaling, then is BitPay planning on or can you talk at all about your thoughts on kind of the off-chain layer and if you see that as a part of your service moving forward? Oh, no. Uh, we never intended to stay entirely on-chain. We knew at some point we were going to have to deal with the scalability limitation. Um, and we've been thinking for the last six years, you know, when and, and how and all those sorts of things. So I think what's going on right now with the threat of a hard fork and the fees rising dramatically, it's shifted that to the front of the priority queue at BitPay. And so I think over the course, you're going to see some really exciting things come out of BitPay related to off-chain payments. And as I mentioned before, just because they're off-chain doesn't mean they lose some of their uh, essential properties like you know privacy and, and such. And we have some ideas that aren't Lightning Network that we think have a lot of promise and uh, we might do some experimentation with that and and that don't even require a change to the to the pro yeah do they require transaction malleability to be fixed because that seems to be the holdup at this point <laughs> and that's the other thing if if concern among miners is that if we activate segwit then uh, then you activate all this off-chain stuff well what i would tell miners is that's going to happen it does segwit doesn't have to get activated it's happening and uh we're building software that's uh, the number one thing we're working on right now at BitPay is building software that allows our payments to happen off-chain. And we don't need any changes to the protocol to make that happen. Now, we do like SegWit. We do like the, the improvements that it makes, and we like the promise of Lightning Network, and we'll see you know, where that avenue takes us, and we'll adopt that once that technology matures. But even if Bitcoin stayed exactly as it is, I can tell you that we can do a lot of very cool things off-chain with no changes to the protocol today, and that the marketplace will very readily accept. I mean, look at look at the situation in payments today. People accept a lot of trust and a lot of risk and a lot of fraud today. We can do an orders of magnitude better than that with the technologies at our disposal and Bitcoin as it exists today. And there's no question in my mind that we can totally transform the payments industry on, on this planet with that technology at hand. If you look at just the question of block size and should we increase the block size, you know, our thinking a, a year or two ago was that, you know, if you remove the block size limit completely, what would happen is miners would start building blocks and they would get orphaned because they're perhaps too big for nodes to validate on the network. And they would just abandon the validation. They would switch to a smaller block and there would be a natural sort of governor of the block size, the size of blocks that actually happens. But think back to what I just said about the smooth and proper operation of the Bitcoin network and the irability of deep chain reorgs and what and the, the, the impact that that has on users. If you look at the Bitcoin network from that perspective and you say, if you start to see chain reorgs of two, three, four, five blocks, that materially degrades the functioning of the network. And then you realize that what happens when miners up against physical limits with the, their block sizes is that you're going to see those kind of chain reorgs because some parts of the network will accept a block and other parts of the network won't. And they'll get out of sync with one another and you're going to start to see lots of chain reorgs. So we've come to the conclusion on that point about do we just would it work if you just got rid of the limit it might kind of work but it would be it, it wouldn't work as well it wouldn't work as well as it does today so our thinking has evolved on that point in that yes you do actually want to have a, a block size limit and the points that people make about it being a burden on full nodes to validate the chain if you just allow the chain to grow unbounded. Those are very valid points because there are a lot of reasons that companies and people need to run full nodes. And you want them to have a say in the size of the 
network that they are willing to validate and the volume of traffic that they can deal with profitably that makes sense for their, their business. I think you're, we're going to see many more reasons for people to run full nodes in the future. And it's very important that that community of people that need to run full nodes have a say in the size of the growth of the blockchain. So we do believe that the size of the blockchain should be limited. Now, having said that, I wrote about that adaptive block size limit uh, idea like about a year ago. We think that a hard limit is a good idea, but we also think an adaptive limit is all, is a good idea as well. And you could do an adaptive limit within a, a larger hard limit that basically constrains the growth of the block size in such a way that you do create a fee market. There is competition to put transactions into the blockchain and it's not unbounded and open-ended so that even a transaction with one Satoshi fee on it would get into the blockchain. So we do believe that a fee market is important. There's been a whole lot of talk and debate about that changing the economics of Bitcoin. It may or may not change the economics of Bitcoin, but we think it's a good idea. You want to have a fee market. And, and if you had an adaptive limit within a harder consensus limit, then the block size could grow up until you hit that hard limit. And then you need to have a process for deciding whether or not you want to raise that limit even further. And we think you can do that with a soft fork, not a hard fork. And then it would involve some kind of user activation followed by a minor activation. And it would be a, a very smooth, non-contentious process to raise that hard limit on the block size periodically as needed. I've started to believe that the phrase, you can't do that with a soft fork, is one that will generate embarrassment, if said by anyone. Yeah, because there's, there's nothing you can't do in a soft fork. It's increasingly seeming that way, right? Even yeah. things that we thought were sacrosanct. I recently read someone who was proposing a method by which you could even increase the 21 million coin limits with a soft fork. Not that that's a good idea, but it seems the boundaries of what can be done with a soft fork versus a hard fork have changed quite a bit now that people are understanding the mechanics yep. better. What I, you I mean, you could do. I mean, you could do all kinds of crazy stuff with a, with a soft fork, and and people could do all kind of things unrelated to money transfer and these side chains and whatnot in in soft forks. And it's it's very exciting because I think once we figure that out and we have the frameworks and the code in place to manage that, well, the sky's the limit as far as the kind of innovation you're going to see around the Bitcoin blockchain. To, to follow up on that, one of the predictions I made about three years ago was that over time, as the Bitcoin core functionality got embedded in more software systems and more libraries and the consensus rules got implemented by more teams in more languages and more libraries it would lead to a certain level of ossification of the protocol and the more different constituencies you had looking to use bitcoin for different reasons the harder it would be to reach consensus on the very big changes meaning that there's a window in which you can make big changes to the Bitcoin consensus rules. And after that, it becomes near impossible, just like you can't upgrade IPv4 because it's in too many devices, right? And it, it, we've, tried, we've been trying to upgrade to IPv6 for 20 years now, <laughs> and it's still not happening. <laughs> you know, what do you think of this idea that the base protocol will, to a certain extent, ossify? and then the innovation will have to move to protocols at a layer above or is that not a concern well i think if you look at the mechanics of a soft fork and you realize that there's nothing you can't do in a soft fork and that it's even safe to do really bad ideas in a soft fork you start to see a, a picture where actually the opposite is the case where we can try really creative things and if they work 
then what will happen is a market will form. There will be value to miners adopting those additional rules. And the good ideas will survive and the weak ones will fail. And it will be a very conducive environment for all kinds of crazy innovation. One of the things that Ethereum followers say about Ethereum is that it doesn't have any holy rules, any holy cows that you can't touch, right? There are no things that you can't break. And the attitude is break whatever needs to be broken in order to move forward. Mm -hmm. I'm probably paraphrasing this, right? Mm -hmm. In, In terms of Bitcoin, we seem to have a broad understanding that there are certain things that will not, cannot, must not change because then it's not Bitcoin. I would probably put the 21 million coin limit in there and certain other things like the way difficulty works. And until recently, I think the block size was one of those, but it's no longer. Are there any sacred cows? Are there any untouchable things in Bitcoin that if we tried to change would no longer make it Bitcoin? I mean, there are things that I would not like to see, like raising the 21 million limit. But if we implement this safe upgrade mechanism for for Bitcoin, then it's really up to the market to decide what's good and what's bad. It will be very clear. I don't think it's going to be a sort of messy, like unclear situation. Somebody will implement something and it will work or it won't work. And it will be very clear that it works or it doesn't work. And then the migration or the upgrade or, or people adopting that change will just happen naturally. So from in that sense, I, I would say there are no sacred cows, but there are some attributes of, of Bitcoin that I think the market will flat out reject and, and w- w- would never happen. For example, you know, increasing the, uh, the limit of, Bitcoin, uh, of the number of Bitcoins in circulation. Well, to follow up on that point, when Bitcoin started, the early adopters were fairly consistent in their vision and ideology. And in fact, I, I see Bitcoin as a series of ideological purity and litmus tests, which, which cause a lot of drama in the community. You know, people quote the, the words of, of Prophet Satoshi to uh, claim the upper hand or to claim the moral superiority in terms of ideological purity and, and accuse others of being insufficiently pure or insufficiently committed to the vision of Satoshi. Now, as we go more and more mainstream, how do we reconcile maintaining some of the ideological and and principled foundations of Bitcoin while appealing to a a mainstream that really doesn't care, doesn't even understand most of the things that, that a lot of us care about. Like, for example, again, the 21 million coin limit matters to a lot of the early constituency of, of Bitcoin, but just just based on how politics runs around the world, I would say it doesn't matter to most people out there. They don't even understand inflation, let alone sound money. Well, well so what's the question? It's, it's how do we stick to those founding principles? Or, or Are we going to be able to? Is it even important to stick to those founding principles? I think if those founding principles are good ideas, they will survive. You're an optimist, Stephen. (laughs) So one of the things I like to talk about is like, if you look at the software industry, the best ideas always survive. In every case, they always survive. If you look at the invention of the GUI, well, it happened at Xerox Park with Alan Kay's team, and they invented that GUI. Now, it wasn't Xerox that commercialized it and made it popular but we use guis today 
the the idea survived. The players and the the companies involved in it changed, but the idea survived. So to the extent that those founding principles are good ideas, I think they will ultimately survive. Now, that doesn't mean we go from point A to point B overnight. It takes time and we may stumble along the way. But if they're good ideas, they will survive. Perhaps not under the Bitcoin flag and name. You know, one of the possibilities is that we'll have to disrupt Bitcoin with something else when Bitcoin becomes a bit too mainstream. True. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephen, and Adam. Music for this episode comes to us by Jared Rubin. The Let's Talk Bitcoin show will be off on Saturday the 16th of April for my yearly week-long internet unplug, returning the following Sunday. As always, questions or comments can be directed to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next week.